You know, as we, as we begin a new year together, it's just natural that we reflect back on the year that we just completed. And we're reminded of things that we hear um, from pulpits like this one and things we read in devotionals and things we pick up from the Scriptures. And we're demonstrating how true they really are when we reflect back. That God is sovereign. And God does things that we can't even imagine. Um, things you could not have planned for a year ago today as you look forward to 2023. But God was in control. God was putting things together. Um, God was working in your life and in your situation. God was bringing things to bear. Um, things you didn't expect, He's, he's still involved with. Um, you can go to Him. You can trust Him. He's powerful. You can rely on Him as you face a new year. You can be confident in Him and all things. As you think about the things you want to do to improve yourself, your life in 2024, I'm sure many of you will. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do better at this. I'm going to work hard at this. I'm going to stop doing this, whatever it may be. Let me give you one encouragement, no, one challenge that I promise you, if you will do this, your life will be better in 2024. And your influence around the people, with the people around you, um, your contribution to their life will be better and greater. And that's if you would commit yourself to reading God's Word every day. I can't think of anything better that you could do. In fact, I, I would challenge you to these three big commitments above anything else. To be in God's Word every day. To seek Him in prayer every day. And as much as is possible with you, whatever God brings your way in 2024, to not miss out on the gathering of the saints in worship on Sundays. Those three things will anchor your life. Those three things will give strength to your everyday. Those three things will give you the perspective you need to face whatever comes your way. Those three things will uh, put your roots down deep in your ability to trust in Christ. And with that being said, let me say this. Some of you, when you start your brand new Bible reading plan tomorrow, and I hope all of you will, I know many of you will, when you start your brand new Bible reading plan tomorrow, you're going to come to Matthew chapter 1, if you're doing one of or two of the three plans that we've recommended to you, you'll start in Matthew tomorrow, Matthew chapter 1, and you're going to be tempted to either fly right through or skip over entirely these first 17 verses. You're going to see this genealogy here, and you're going to say, okay, that doesn't really matter. I mean, that's, that can't be that important. I want to get to the good stuff. This is sort of like an easy day. I'll breeze through this part and move on to the things that really matter. Let me encourage you not to do that. In fact, I'm going to teach you through this today, and I'm going to show you how important this passage really is. Because what God is revealing in Matthew chapter 1 is the beginning of everything again. The remaking of everything, the restoration of everything that's broken, the making of everything that's new. It's the introduction of a new covenant, the replacement of an old covenant. The teachings of Moses, the law of Moses, gives way to a better law, the teachings of Christ. The sacrifices that we find in the, in the temple in the Old Testament are far exceeded in worth by the one and great and final sacrifice of Jesus. And the great purpose of God to save for Himself a people is all revealed in the coming of Christ. And so everything is being made new, a new genesis in Matthew chapter 1. And that's what I want us to look at today as we pray together. Father, I pray that You would reveal Your goodness and Your purposes your will for us in your word today. 
And Father, those things which may be familiar, I pray that you'd give new insight into. And those things which we've never thought of or considered, Father, I pray you'd impress on our hearts. And Father, as we consider this text together today, this wouldn't just be just information. It wouldn't just be curiosities that we learn about. But Father, we would see you. And we would see your involvement in our lives and how good you are and how gracious you are and how and why we can trust you. And I pray that would all be true for all of us gathered today in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of, this is an interesting one, Salmon. We won't call him Salmon because that would be too. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah is the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliod, and Eliod the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from, from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There, I did the hard work for you. Your Bible reading plan is off to a fast start. Now, as you start unlocking this passage, the reason why I tell you don't, don't disregard the value of this is because it's setting the stage for everything that's to come. I mean, a constant question of Jesus in all the Gospels is this. In so many words, who are you? Who is this Christ? Who, who do you claim to be? And we get our first insights into his story, his storyline. This is where it's revealed to us who is the Jesus of the Gospels. Who is the one true Jesus that we believe in? And so a few observations just help us understand the text a little bit. Some of it may be more for curiosity. And then some ones with some particular insight. Think of this genealogy and compare it to the only other one that we have in the Gospels, which is Luke's. Whereas Luke's Gospel goes all the way back to the beginning. When you see the genealogy in the Gospel of Luke, who does it start with? Adam. I mean, you want to talk about the storyline of Jesus, the family line, the lineage? Many goes all the way back. That's one serious ancestry chart. From Adam, he traces all the way down to Jesus. But Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew starts with Abraham. Why is that the case? Why does one start with the first man and one starts with Abraham? Now, sort of conventional wisdom would suggest this. Luke is writing a gospel for Gentile people. And so he's tracing Jesus all the way back to the first man, showing that Jesus is in the line of all people. So Jesus is 
for all mankind. Just as Jesus came from the first man, and he's going to undo what the first man did. He's the second Adam. He's the new beginning. He's for all mankind. You may have heard that before. So Luke is writing this sort of universal gospel that includes Gentiles. Matthew, on the other hand, is starting with Abraham. So starting with Abraham, he's showing that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. And so conventional wisdom, and most of our thoughts about this have been, the Gospel of Matthew is for Jewish people. He's given this gospel to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish prophecies. He comes from the line of Abraham. But wait, Matthew expects us to understand a few things. He expects us to understand, first of all, that Abraham, well, Abram, before his name was changed, was actually a pagan. And he was not from that line. He was brought into a covenant by God. He was an outsider that God brought in. And in the New Testament, we also begin to see that everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus becomes a true child of Abraham. So the covenant that God made with Abraham when he said, I'm going to bless you, and through you I'm going to bless all the nations, is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. It's not exclusive to the Jews. But through Abraham, God made a promise that he would bless all the nations of people. He would establish them. God was giving him back to the nations, according to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 22, all nations will be blessed. And when you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, you find a gospel message that's going out to all the nations. That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. And so what we're seeing in Matthew is not just limited to Jewish people. Don't mistake the gospel of Matthew as not being for you. He's showing that God made a covenant with his, with his son Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham and honored that covenant. But now he's inviting all who will believe in him, all who will trust in him, into a new covenant, a better covenant, the covenant that we have in Christ. And that covenant is for the nations. And so that's the message of the Gospel of Matthew. That's why you're in this story. So, secondly, whereas Luke's Gospel runs from David to David's son Nathan, Matthew runs the genealogy differently. He runs the genealogy from Matthew to David's son, Solomon. One runs it through Nathan, one runs it through Solomon. What's the difference? There's a difference between a bloodline of descent and a bloodline of succession. Now, this is just for those curiosities. Sometimes people ask some questions, well, why does this one go this way? And why is this one this way? Does that mean that one is wrong? We shouldn't trust the Scriptures? Who's correct here? Well, one is given a strict bloodline. That's the bloodline of descent. That's, That's the actual line of Joseph. Matthew gives the latter, the bloodline of succession. This is how it actually flowed from this person to this person. And maybe the best way of us understanding this would be, if any of you who are interested in this sort of thing, this kind of history, is to look at the line of ascension, say, on the British throne. And it doesn't run directly through the lines you suspect. Sometimes it skips over someone. Sometimes someone's excluded for a reason, for cause. There are purposes and reasons where the line will zigzag a bit. So one is a strict bloodline, and one is a royal bloodline, one's a line of of ascent. But you'll notice that both of them have this in common. They all run through, at the end, Joseph, who is legally Jesus' father by adoption. And so it's all running there together. Some other things you might notice in this. As I was reading it, you saw that three-part separation, that three-part division. You've got these different categories. Each of these sections, those three parts, are critical turning points in the history, life cycle, of Israel. So first of all, you've got the, the onset of the Babylonian exile. That's verses 11 and 12. 
This is when the monarchy is destroyed and what's left of the nation is transported back to Babylon. From that time on, there was no heir of David. There was a promise made to David that he would sit on the throne forever or from his line would be one who would sit on the throne forever. But since the Babylonian captivity, there has been no throne. But David, or Matthew is arguing in in the Gospel of Matthew, that this line of David is going to be reestablished and it's going to be reestablished in Christ. You also see this emphasis on the number 14. In each of these sections, there are 14, 14 different characters, 14 different generations of people. Names have been left out. Historians will look at this and say, wait a minute, this is not a strict bloodline because they've left some names out. Between Joram and Uzziah came Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, and there's some other omissions in the text as well. When you're looking at that and someone questions it and says, wait, this is not accurate, you need to understand in biblical language when you see the word the father of, that doesn't necessarily mean literally the biological father of. That could mean the ancestor of, the progenitor of. That means above him was this person. Down the line could come other people. But the resulting divisions that you see here, these 14 divisions, they do tell us something. Now, for those of you who like to dig into the the really deep, deep stuff here, the the high grass uh, out in the weeds, we don't know exactly what it tells us. And you'll read some different commentaries and things, and some will suggest that it reflects something of the priesthood and these generations of priesthoods that the high priest from Aaron to Solomon's temple, from temple to the last priest mentioned in Scripture, one commentary suggests that. Most would suggest that the number 14 is reflective to Jewish people's understanding of names and numbers, that every name has a corresponding number. And in Hebrew numerology, and I won't get into this today because it doesn't really matter for our purposes, in Hebrew numerology, the name David is symbolized by number 14. And so what Jesus is showing through this, through this lineage here, what Scriptures are showing, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the throne of David. It's an emphasis that a Jewish reader would understand. Wait, this is all pointing to Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of David. But there's some deeper things to see in the text. One is this genealogy includes five women in it. Most Hebrew genealogies don't include women at all. Now, now Mary's a given. Mary's an obvious one that we see her at the very end of genealogy. And we've spoken of Mary already. We spoke of her last week. But what are the other four women? You may remember some of these names, some of these characters in Scripture. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, not mentioned by name, but listed as Uriah's wife, verse 6. What does this tell us? Matthew's gospel is giving us something more than just biology, just something more than just strict genealogy. There's some theology being taught here. Let's revisit who the women were for a second. Tamar, what did she do? Tamar seduced her father-in-law, Judah, into an incestuous relationship. Rahab, we know Rahab saved the spies, right? She's famous for that, for her good work, but she was also a pagan prostitute. What about Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. Um, Often the Moabites were grave enemies of the Israelites, Um, often frequent opposition to the Israelites. And what about Bathsheba? Bathsheba was probably Jewish. She would have been considered non-Jewish because she married someone who wasn't Jewish, so she would have been considered a Hittite, married to Uriah. And whatever her genealogy was, whatever her nationality was, she only came into the line of the kings, the line of Jesus, because of adultery. So everything here is really rather tainted, right? That God would include in the bloodline of the Messiah intentionally, and that scriptures would record it. 
enemies, outsiders, prostitutes, adulterers. All that speaks to one great theme in this genealogy. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And consider even the kings that are listed. I read through those names rather quickly, and you may have zoned out a bit as I was just giving names that you probably are not terribly familiar with. Think of some of the names. Matthew's genealogy names 15 kings in that text, from David to Jeconiah. Jeconiah is also known as Jehoiakim in the Old Testament. So Jesus obviously came from a noble line, a line of kings, but a closer examination of this group shows that this noble line of kings wasn't exactly a righteous group. Now, you had some great men in the group, some men of of real faith, um, some giants of the faith. You had David, Hezekiah, Josiah. Those were all great men in the Old Testament. David and Hezekiah, the two greatest kings of Israel. But even among the believers that were listed, the ones that were followers of God, some committed some rather egregious sins. Jehoshaphat entered into alliances with wicked men frequently. Hezekiah, in his pride and foolishness, exposed all the treasures of Israel to Israel's enemies, and so they plundered them later. Uzziah took on the role of a priest in direct defiance of God's uh, laws. And then about half the kings in the genealogy were truly wicked kings, notoriously wicked. Ahaz worshipped pagan gods of Assyria and practiced human sacrifice, including one of his own sons that he killed, stripped the gold and silver from the temple, gave that away, defied the Lord's altar and put in pagan altars. Ahaz wasn't necessarily the worst. Rehoboam, Jeconiah were almost as bad. Manasseh was certainly worse. Manasseh, according to Scripture, did more evil than the nations according to 2 Kings 21, verse 9 and following. So you had some good men, some decent men who did some bad things, and some truly evil men. What does that all say to us as we look at this genealogy? I love this statement from a commentary by Daniel Doriani. He says, Jesus' genealogy includes great kings and sordid sinners. Regal as his lineage was, Jesus did not come to praise his forebears, but to save them. So in this line of Jesus is real humanity. He's showing that the purpose of God is to save those who have failed, those who are sinners. So there are four big reveals, and this is the heart of what I want you to hear today, four big reveals in the genealogy of Jesus. As we're looking at the story of Christ and laying a right foundation so when we see miracles later and we hear messages later, we'll understand the heart of these things and what, they, what they're for. The true identity of Jesus is the first big reveal the true identity of Jesus, that we would know who He really is, that He's the Christ, He's the Son of Abraham, He's the Son of David. He is the one that every Old Testament text about the promises of God are fulfilled through. He is every result of every prophecy. Everything points to Him. In the time of Jesus, there was a very strong hope, a nationalistic hope, that God would send them someone who would deliver them from the Romans, that would deliver them from the oppression that they were under, that would restore to them their former greatness, that would put someone on the throne, that they would have power and authority and influence again. And so they were looking for this political, earthly ruler to take the throne of David. Jesus was so much more than that, and eternally will be revealed as infinitely more than that. As we look at Jesus being revealed in these verses to come in Matthew, we'll see that he's the author of a new creation altogether. He didn't come to simply improve the lots of the people that would be under him. He didn't come to simply teach a better ethic, to make the world a better place for a season. He's coming to bring about an entirely new creation 
This idea of genealogy is Genesis. It's a new beginning. The world apart from Christ was without hope. And yet in Christ, there's hope now returning to the world. The author of a new creation. He's the fulfillment of Revelation 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We see the future newness in the new heavens and new earth. The new creation will be visible, tangible, all revealed to us. It will all make uh, perfect sense. But the beginning of it, the initiation of it, was the coming of Christ into the world so that those who put their faith and trust in Him could be part of that new creation. That their lives wouldn't simply be better, they would be made new. Whoever's in Christ becomes that new creation. This is what's revealed in Jesus. He's also the King who will live forever. As we see all these evidences and all these clues that are pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, son of David, son of Abraham, we see He is that King. He is the King promised in 2 Samuel 7.13, of whom it was said, I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. He is the King of 2 Samuel 7.16, your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. He is the one that Gabriel promised Mary would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is Jesus. He is that promised one, that promised king. That's the son of David. And as the son of Abraham, he's the fulfillment of the promises made by God to Abraham. He's the seed through, through whom all the nations will be blessed. He's the king in the line of David. He's the seed, the promised one of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. Again, remember these promises. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, God said to, to Abraham, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How shall all the families of the earth be blessed? Through Christ, as the gospel is taken to the nations at the end of the gospel of Matthew chapter 28. Galatians three sixteen. now these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings made to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So when we see Jesus revealed, son of David, son of Abraham, is telling us more than his physical lineage. This is more than about DNA. This is about his God-sent purpose. He is the promised king. He is the promised seed that blesses the nations. So the true identity of Jesus is the first big reveal. The second big reveal in the genealogy of Jesus is the sovereignty and faithfulness of God. The sovereignty and faithfulness of God. Because what you have in a, in a synopsis is a history of Israel and this genealogy. And any student of Israel's history, anyone who was familiar with the Old Testament, could look at this story and they could remember, yes, I remember these key points. These are all key events, key periods, key epochs in the storyline of Israel. And through these, you can see God has been faithful. God has been carrying this all along. This genealogy isn't really about the people that are listed there. It's really about God. It's about God who, starting with Abraham, made a plan, gave a promise, and carried it out, even though so many had failed, even though so many had rejected it, even though so many had departed from it. God carried it through. In spite of sinful man, God made His plan come to pass. In His Christmas book, this is a great Advent devotional, <clears throat> that was given to me this Christmas, The Dawn of Redeeming Grace. Sinclair Ferguson writes, From the very beginning, God knew exactly where He was going. Throughout the centuries, He was directing history to this moment. Despite His people's failures and trials, despite various cataclysmic events like the exile in Babylon, the longest standing and most difficult to keep promise of God, 
has come to fulfillment in Jesus. That's what this genealogy points through. This history of Israel that is so spotted and checkered, this history of Israel that's marked by highs and devastating lows, in all of that, God is working something to accomplish His purposes. Listen, if God can do that for millions of people, if God can do that for a nation of people across the span of centuries, don't you think God is sufficient to be sovereign in your life, faithful in your life, that you can trust Him with the affairs of your life? If you can trust Him with the affairs of a nation, no, with the affairs of a world, if you can trust Him with the plan to save all those who come to Him in Christ, surely you can trust Him with the affairs of your life. Number three, great reveal in this account is God's grace towards sinners. God's grace towards sinners. It's the whole purpose of the coming of Christ. To, to include you in this story. I mean, again, as I pointed out earlier, the genealogy of Jesus is not untouched by sin and failure. Some of it of the worst sorts. Some of it of the type that you would say, there's no way a person like that would ever be in heaven. There, there's no way a person like that could ever know God. And you might even think, how could God forgive a person like that? But yet this is showing you the grace of God that's greater than our sin, even the worst of sin. That God not simply condones, because He doesn't condone. Overlooks? No, but He doesn't overlook. He redeems and restores. He punishes sin in Christ, even the worst of sins. The worst kinds of sinners are made free and forgiven by Christ. And He restores people, even the most broken, even the worst sort of people, back to hope, back to life back to himself. This is what he does. His, ge his genealogy doesn't only include sin and failure, it includes Gentiles, people outside of what they thought was God's plan. This was revolutionary to a Hebrew reader in the times of Christ, that this gospel includes the world, it includes Gentiles, it includes pagans, it includes all those who weren't Jews. What Matthew's genealogy is telling us is this, the eternal family of God, that lineage, that genealogy of Christ, you can be a part of if you'll come to Him in faith. And that includes not just Jews, but that includes people of all nations. The Lion of Christ will include you if you'll come to Him in faith, whoever you are, wherever you are. And that's why at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, His people are given a commission, His disciples are given a commission, make disciples of all nations. All nations. It's God's grace on display towards sinners. And finally, it's this one, and maybe the most obvious of all. It's the true story of God's plan of redemption. This is one that I think we might overlook because it just seems obvious as we think about it. But I want you to consider for a moment how the gospel story begins. It, it begins with a true story. It, it begins with, with flesh and blood. It begins with a family tree for people who would deny the reality of Jesus. No, look, this... This starts with real people. We can trace this through. We can tell you who gave birth to who and who came after that. It starts with a true story. We want you to know the story of God's salvation is rooted in history and time and place. This is real. This is real. This took place through a real family line, through a real person, through a real act of God. This is not just idea or concept. This is not myth or fable or legend. This is the history of God's interactions in the world. And the greatest intervention in the world was the invasion into our dark world of the light of Christ. This is real. This is all true. All of Israel's story has been leading up to this point. Everything that you see, and again, that's why you see those blocks depicting the great 
eras of Israel's history. Each of these great eras has all been leading up to this, and Christ now is the fulfillment. It's the completion. Everything is here pointing to Christ, leading up to Jesus. He is, as we're going to see more and more and more unfolding, so store this one away. Jesus is the king who is now bringing about a new kingdom. He's bringing about a new kingdom. The parallel of this is in Mark's gospel, chapter 1. Mark's gospel, assuming that his readers knew the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus, both from Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, simply begins with the ministry of Jesus. In the ministry of Jesus, it begins with Jesus' teaching. And Jesus' first teaching is all centered on the kingdom. In fact, this is what he says, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Why is the kingdom here? Because the king is here. The king is here ushering in a new kingdom. What do you do to be part of that kingdom according to Mark's gospel? Repent and believe the gospel. And then the very next chapter of Mark's gospel, which is not a new conversation, but a continuation of the one we've already heard, says, follow me. The king is here. The kingdom is now being initiated. How do you become a part of that kingdom? Repent of your sins. Believe the good news about the king that's come. And follow him. Follow the king. He's ushering this new kingdom. That's why Matthew's gospel is a new genesis. It's a new beginning. It's a new beginning. Jesus comes into this world of darkness, a kingdom of darkness, ruled by the prince of the power of the air. Whether people acknowledge the ruler of this world, this dark world or not, doesn't matter. Jesus comes in to conquer that kingdom and its king. And he does. He overthrows them. So as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see Jesus' teachings about the kingdom. We'll see the greatest sermon ever given in Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, the King, talking about the kingdom. We'll see promises of the new kingdom and its fulfillment, how it's all going to come into place in time and space, how we'll see it and take part in it. And we'll see, we'll end with the great commission to all those who are already in that kingdom. Be ambassadors of that kingdom. Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, knowing that I'm with you always, knowing that all authority is mine to bring them into that kingdom with you. What's your response to that king and that kingdom? That's your challenge with Matthew's gospel. The king has come. The king has come. Will you believe him? Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Will you make him known to the nations? That's the challenge of Matthew's gospel initiated in the genealogy. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we begin our journey into this gospel account, this gospel according to Matthew, we trust in the inspiration of your word by your spirit. We trust, Father, that this word is living and powerful. It's sharp, it's active. We trust that you'll speak to us through it. You'll reveal yourself in it. And that you'll change us, that we'll be transformed as we yield to it. Father, as we think of the coming of Jesus into this world, to rule and to reign, to establish the kingdom that he invites the nations into, Father, all we can do is celebrate that as your people. Father, all we can do is be amazed at that. And Lord, give you all the glory that we're included in that. Lord, in, in humble gratitude. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making us a part of your everlasting kingdom. And Father, that stirs in our heart a longing to to see Jesus fully revealed. We long for the return of the King. We long to see Jesus in glory 
We long to see Jesus rule and reign over all things and all people. We long deeply within us for everything to be made right, for all that which is broken to be restored and all that is, that is evil to be removed and for all that is good to be enjoyed forever. We long for the new heavens and the new earth because of our King. And so, Father, I pray that as we consider Jesus, Lord, that you stir our hearts towards worship, greater faith, deeper devotion, and worship. And Father, that what we value most, we'll talk about. Who we love most, we'll talk about. This which matters most to us, we'll talk about. And in so doing, we'll make disciples too, like us. So Father, as we praise you, Lord, be pleased. Be pleased with our worship and our praise of King Jesus this morning. I ask in his name, amen.